The Conversationalist is a podcast about the history of science from the 19th century to today, brought to you by the Constructing Scientific Communities Project. Okay, let's get this party started. In the 19th century, many scientific institutions hosted what were known as conversazione, evening gatherings to showcase science and the arts. These events ranged from the outrageously raucous to the excruciatingly boring, but they were united in bringing together experts and amateurs, professional scientists, and the general public for lectures, displays, performances, and, of course, conversation. In this podcast, we invite you to join our version of these classic Victorian affairs, our very own cocktail party with experts on the history of science. Conversazione were about information, but they were also very much about entertainment. So we ask our guests in each episode to regale us with a story about the history of science that will captivate us for a drink or two. At the end of the episode, we'll head over to the bar to chat with our bartenders, who will share a recipe, a story, or maybe a bit of history about the food and drink that so often accompany a good conversation. Well, welcome to the Conversationalist podcast. Um, I'm Kira Allman. I'm the Media and Communications Officer for the Constructing Scientific Communities Project. Uh, would you each like to introduce yourselves? I'm Sally Frampton. I'm a historian of medicine and I'm a postdoctoral researcher on constructing scientific communities. I'm Oscar Cox Jensen. I am a historian and sort of music historian. I am a Leverhulme Fellow at Queen Mary University of London. Well, thank you so much, both of you, for joining me for the conversationalist today. Um, cheers. 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 <laughs> All right. So, Sally and Oscar, what will we be talking about today? Today we will be talking about uh, the history of vaccination um, and that includes the anti-vaccination movement and we're also going to be talking about how the history of vaccination intersects with um, cultural history and uh, music which Oscar is going to tell us more about. Yeah that's I think what I've been roped in here for. I fear it will not be restricted to just talking um, if I have things right um, we might be persuaded to sing at some point. Brilliant. That sounds great. <laughs> okay, well, I guess maybe let's start with Sally. When did vaccinations first appear on the scene? We're talking about vaccinations broadly, so. Yeah, well, vaccination has a, a pretty long and complicated history. Um, a vaccination, I guess, as we know it, appeared at the end of the 18th century. Um, and that was when uh, a chap named Edward Jenner, who I'd imagine some people are familiar with, he was a, a doctor in Gloucestershire. Um, he uh, developed the idea that, um, uh, that smallpox, people could be protected from smallpox um, by having uh, a, a less um, dangerous disease called cowpox um, uh, injected into them. Um, and so he developed this idea of vaccination. So that comes from the, the Latin uh, vacca, which is means cow. Um, and he did some uh, some experiments on local children, which we might consider um, somewhat ethically dubious. Yes, these days, um, where he uh, took um, matter from uh, uh, cows who had had cowpox and he put it in in their arms um, to see whether that would prevent them from getting smallpox, and and it did. Um, but this builds on a, a longer history. Uh, 
of um, a practice called inoculation, which is where um, people cottoned on quite early that if you um, uh, put a small bit of smallpox uh, matter, so a scab or a pustule or something like that in the arm of someone, this tended to stop them getting smallpox themselves. So the big transition really was from moving from using smallpox matter to using uh, cowpox, which was um, a much safer way of, of preventing the disease. Hmm. And how was that received when it was initially implemented? Um, so, so while Jenna was uh, Jenna wasn't quite the first to to work out that you could use cowpox to prevent uh, prevent people getting smallpox, there had been other people who'd kind of worked this out, but it was more of a folk practice, so something that was used by farmers um, and so forth. But the difference with Jenna was that he was a doctor; he was a fully paid up member of the medical establishment, and he conducted this experimental research. He published his findings, and uh, that was when the idea really got accepted into the medical community but as we'll see since there's been vaccination there's always been resistance to vaccination that has been there since the very beginning um so there was always an undercurrent of um a concern and anxiety from from different members uh, sex, sectors of society um, about va what vaccination was and whether it was really safe i remember doing a bit of this um at school in the uk we did a, a module when we were about 16 on the history of medicine and jenna was like this totemic figure and i remember this glorious statue of him and this small naked boy stabbing something in his arm and that was the heroic image but then we saw these caricatures as well at the same time and it was all people getting fixated on the whole cowpox thing mm -hmm. so turning people into cows is the obvious thing that people seem to be worried about in these cartoons absolutely yeah, yeah it, was a, it was a huge thing and you, you um, as oscar says there's these amazing caricatures by people like um james gilray where people are having the cowpox injected into them and they're sprouting horns as the, as the cowpox is put into them and this did play on genuine concerns people had about um matter from animals being being put into the into the human body and what that what uh, maybe the consequences of doing that so how did vaccination change between uh, Jenner's work and the 19th century? And why was vaccination such a big issue in the 19th century? Um, I mean, there were lots of issues around it. I mean, um, so I guess the, the 19th century the, yeah, there's a huge and um, complex development in what happens with vaccination. So there's changes in the in the technique of how it's done, um, but there's changes um, in the politics around it um, as well. Um, so in the first half of, of the 19th century, um, uh, quite often the vaccination is done by a method called arm to arm to arm vaccination, um, which is as slight as dodgy as it sounds really so uh cowpox <laughs> would be taken from one arm and then it would be transferred imme immediately into the arm of another person so that that the live matter from one person would be transferred mm -hmm. to another person which came with all sorts of risks about other you know infecting people with other blood-borne diseases like syphilis and so forth um and eventually that's phased out and manufactured calf lymph is used instead by the end mm. of the 19th century so that's one big change but i think what is perhaps Perhaps more more interesting is the politics of vaccination changes massively during this time. Um, by the middle of the 19th century, you have um, a, a huge increase in public health measures um, in Britain. And then with that comes the 1853 Compulsory Vaccination Act. So that makes uh, vaccination compulsory uh, for all babies under the age of three months old. Wow. And this is a huge development. Um, and once those legislative changes come in, so there's further um, laws kind of passed um, during the second half of the century. The anti-vaccination movement ramps up in 
um, uh, in resistance to these to these laws which are making it compulsory. Um, people see these laws as an infringement on their personal liberty, on the choices they make about their family's health and so forth. And so with that, you get this uh, this huge anti-vaccination movement uh, coming into play in Britain and, and in other parts of the world as well. Was that fairly unusual, that uh, making vaccinations compulsory? Was uh, Britain particularly early in doing that? Yeah, I think it's is one of the earliest uh, public health measures. Um, but it's happening at a time when uh, other things are happening in medicine. You have the 1858 Med- Medical Act, which finally makes it um, uh, 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 doctors have to be registered. They have to be on a medical register. So there's this whole idea of trying to root, it, root out quackery and regulate medicine. So there's other things going on in that context as well. But yeah, I think it is one of the the earliest measures. Let's talk a little bit more maybe about why people were so skeptical about vaccinations and how they responded then to compulsory vaccination. So what did the anti-vax movement look like? Well, there was lots of different reasons. I mean, one one of uh, the kind of interesting um, factors in it is is religion. So a lot of the the people involved in the anti vaccination movement were part of, um, I guess, sort of non conforming religious um, uh, religious organisations. In particular, the the Swedenborg. Swedenborgian church um, and they had some very specific ideas about blood poisoning and you still get this in, in some religions today um, there was this idea that uh, by being vaccinated you were infecting the blood and this would have an impact on your on your on your soul as well um, so there's a huge crossover there and there's a crossover with lots of different kind of um, alternative um, radical causes at this time mm. with uh, vegetarianism and and other... <laughs> <laughs> which doesn't seem very radical now yeah. so, um, so there's almost like the the cliche of the the sandal wearing hippies but maybe in a religious context yes yeah yeah, yeah i think so um uh, there's all sorts of interesting social factors um i think it's primarily a middle class movement but you do have uh, quite a lot of um working class radicals um involved in it um as well um so there's there's kind of different con- some people just simply weren't convinced about the efficacy of vaccinating they didn't they didn't think it was that effective they thought um measures such as hygiene improving hygiene and cleanliness were, were what you needed and this was the reason that uh, smallpox was declining and then some people were, were much more concerned about the compulsion element and become involved after the those acts come in place because they see it as an infringement on personal liberty um, and I think a lot of it is centered around the fact that it's children that are being vaccinated and this has a huge a huge impact it's um it's a very um, um, emotion driven movement a lot of the time mm-hmm. um, children are, are kind of um, are seen as the innocent victims of these these doctors who are um, uh, making money out of um, uh, going around performing this procedure this um, what they see is a, a very questionable procedure it's it's quite weird I think this sort of early to mid-Victorian attitude towards towards children. You have the real sentimentality and then at the same time the more brutal aspects. I suppose this is a time when they've really just invented the idea of childhood, yeah. And in the previous decade, the 1840s, you have the first act that forbids children under a certain age to be chimney sweeps. Mm. So you have that sort of Oliver Twist context of, of sentiment, people like Dickens really making the child this figure to really think about and be, be pitied. But that, I suppose, is in the cause of reform and progress, as is this, but it can be moved to the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. So what was the scale of this movement like? Are we talking about people out in the streets protesting vaccinations or was this something that you did sort of quietly at home? Um, you know, there was no internet, you couldn't just complain yeah. on Facebook. So what were people doing to express their displeasure with vaccination? 
Yeah, there, there were marches. So, so um, in 1885, there was a huge march in Leicester, which um, uh, somewhat surprisingly was a hotbed of anti-vaccination <laughs> activity um, because there was a lot of uh, uh, non-conforming uh, religious movements up there. Um, and that protest had somewhere between 80 to 100,000 people. So actually pretty big. Um, so, you know, and that was a very loud, riotous march, um, effigies of Edward Jenner being decapitated in streets and so forth. So, um, yes, it, it, it was, it was, I guess, always a countercultural movement, but a pretty sizable countercultural movement. Put that in the context of the biggest marches of the 19th century and think about people protesting for reform of the vote, for, for the Chartist movement, you get huge numbers of people. Oh, 100,000 is about as much as you'll ever have anywhere. Just logistically, you can't get more than that many people yeah. in. The thought that people demanding the vote and people demanding a stop to this outrageous practice is about equivalent. That's quite something. So it sounds to me like there was a pretty substantial hearts and minds campaign that was occurring on both sides, the pro-vaccination side and the anti-vax side. So what did that hearts and mind campaign consist of? Um, I mean, on the, the anti-vaccination side, you get um, a huge swathes of literature, you get pamphlets, you get journals. Um, we've, we talked about children, so very emotive cases of children being injured and, and possibly even killed by vaccines, you know, are reported in their own literature. Um, often the anti-vaccination campaigners try to get published in the mainstream press in the Times and so forth, but don't get very far <laughs> um, or, or get published in the medical journals. But um, obviously the medical journals take a very hard line um, against any kind of um, uh, uh, anti-vaccination sentiment. But that's not to say that um, all, uh, there was a lot of high profile anti-vaccination campaigners so I guess Alfred Russell Wallace um, of uh, evolution fame was was a very uh, well-known anti-vaccination campaigner mm. and his his image was actually quite frequently used um, in their in their kind of propaganda as well um, and they're using um, other things as well they're using uh, they're using poems and songs and all sorts of uh, literary strategies I guess to get the public on board with their campaign. Wallace is that like um, I don't know the creationist movement trying trying to or the the anti climate change movement trying to sign up a load of scientists to to give them respectability in that way. Absolutely, yeah, they do. I mean, because you do, there are some there were some doctors who 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 were suspicious about vaccination. And they try extremely hard to to get them on board and to to get them involved um, in the campaign as well because it would yeah give them a degree of credibility, I guess, to have them on their side. And so, Oscar, how did this manifest in popular culture? What is what are the cultural dimensions to this anti-vax movement? Well, this is a quite an interesting time for popular culture in Britain because, as Sally as Sally said, she's referenced some of the major organs of the press, and literacy is really taking off in this period. By the eighteen fifties, you have far more people being able to read from an earlier age, and at the same time, some of the older forms of popular culture are dying out. So. Um, newspapers are becoming increasingly important because um, you finally get the um, end of the stamp acts which are acts that make newspapers cost a certain amount so that um, you can't have really cheap newspapers essentially and the idea behind that being that really radical movements can't publish off their own bat so um, trying to trying to trying to make newspapers purely respectable but then this ends and you can publish newspapers for a penny roughly so anyone can buy them pretty much and this starts to make that the dominant form of media um, that we know, and that will stay the same for a century. And this means that all the other sorts of things that we used to have in terms of pictures, in terms of music, songs, stuff that would come out differently, 
starts to end up in newspapers. So the newspaper in itself is almost like the multimedia form, if you like. So mm. weirdly, it's almost like a newspaper internet. Is that a fair thing to say? <laughs> because through through this one medium, you get access to all these these different sorts of things. You can also print images far more cheaply by the 1850s, and that also really helps to get some real horrible caricatures and things out there. And these are big national institutions, um, but also smaller, more local papers and journals, I'd say. Would you say that's fair, Sally, that um, print is the the main organ for this but then that has a multimedia dimension yeah yeah absolutely yeah um yeah the the um i mean there was three anti-vaccination journals um in the 19th wow. century which is <laughs> quite incredible one of which lasts till 1974 and I, I i still haven't looked at that one just to see kind of how it develops over wow. the century so you know i think they are really um uh, getting getting on you know with this uh, they're, they're using this expansion in print culture to their advantage quite successfully though because like mm. people start up journals all the time in the 19th century but normally they last sort of one or two issues and then they go bankrupt this is sure. yeah the thing people do and these are these are yeah yeah, yeah. i mean one of the other one last 10 years so yeah as you yeah. say this is you know a, a lifetime in in periodical culture that, that it can last that long so that does help tell you something about you know how popular the mo- movement is and how uh periodicals work to their advantage in in getting their word out and what kind of imagery was used? You you mentioned that it was it was pretty powerful imagery. Yeah, with uh, the the vaccination kind of imagery, really is uh, it's very dark. A lot of it, as you would imagine. Um, uh, there's uh, one of my favourites is the vaccination monster, which is a, a, a available in welcome images, which hopefully we can put up of uh, people being inhaled by this vaccination monster and then spewed out the other end. So oh. lots of very visceral, brutal image images. Um, doctors being carried um images which play on this idea that vaccination is causing all sorts of other diseases in people so yeah i think that that is a huge part of of their strategy as well so yeah obviously this imagery was extremely gruesome in some ways um you also mentioned that there are songs that were used as well were these the kind of things that would occur at a protest for instance would people sing these collectively yeah i mean i i can't give you a, a definite answer to, to that but i would imagine so yes i think i think they probably were used at meetings and marches you know um oscar can probably tell us more about the, the effect of the song and you know presumably it was used to kind of uh bring the community together and you know get people going on a, a rousing chant of uh anti-vaccination uh lyrics yeah, yeah. This, this is yeah this is where sally and i um came together in the first place she said we've got these songs in these journals and and papers were, and they and they specify a tune what is what is going on here what do we think and yeah it's always the intention of these people to get them taken up and sung by the people as well because as soon as someone's joining in then that sort of gets them on your side and there's a great long history of this sort of um protest song it goes back centuries by this point and it's interesting you see them really well done and really terribly done <laughs> like one of the big features of 18th 19th century political songs that's trying to make a point like this is very often they adopt the tone of like someone in a pulpit and they're lecturing you and telling you what you must or mustn't do and trying to get across a message that never really works in a song like that it's a terrible idea who wants to listen to that who wants to go on a march and sing that but i think in my in my actually yeah in my expert knowledge of 19th century um propaganda songs i'd say these two we've got from the anti-vaccination movement do a pretty good job Hmm. of what they're doing and i can easily see people joining in happily with these they're really effective um they, they, people don't write new music for these sorts of things. The thing you get with almost all sort of working class popular songs in, in these years is people take a tune that people already know and put new words to it. So it, it's parody. That, that's very much what you, 
what you get, which is still a thing done these days, but a lot less often, especially once you have copyright. These songs are just sort of floating around in the public ear, so people know these tunes. They have certain associations, some of these songs go back centuries, and you put new words to them, which can be done very quickly. And there you go, you've got a whole new song with a whole load of meaning already built in. Would you like to give us an example of one of these songs? Yeah, well, so um, we have... I was I was really interested when I came across or when Sally came across these two anti-vaccination songs because the tunes they they are set to one of them is it's Guy Fawkes which is also Juno's Bow Wow Wow um, which is an 18th century drinking song that's always used for political ends um, maybe we'll come to that in in a minute but the other one the tune is the Vicar of Bray this I found really fascinating because this is an old 18th century like early 18th century tune and it's about it's about a vicar who whatever happens and this is like a vicar who's in charge of a parish for, for like the whole of the 17th and early 18th century he just turns his coat to he just starts adopting whatever positions in power so like when when Charles the first is beheaded when Charles the second comes back when there's a new reform in the church he just goes along with that so it's this really anti-clerical song that always has these connotations of we'll do whatever mm -hmm. and that's really picked up in the new version because it goes through the history of inoculation and vaccination much as sally told it earlier mm -hmm. but presents it in the same way it's like oh i am a doctor not a vicar anymore but a doctor and i'm just going to do whatever people say um so they would have perhaps picked it because it had those connotations oh they already. totally knew it oh, yeah okay. that, that mm. it's it's done so yeah. it's crafted so well onto that tradition and so in the decades before the period we're talking about, this song kind of went out of favour, but then it really came back in the mid-19th century. Um, do you want me to start off on medical <laughs> orthodoxy to the tune of the Vicar of Bray? I, I, absolutely. Yeah. Um, when first the smallpox scare did raise in all men's minds a ferment, we doctors saw the people's craze would bring to us preferment. To teach the public we ne'er missed that we could save the nation. But lost were all who should resist or shun inoculation. And there's a chorus. Um, and this is law, as will maintain each qualified MD, sir. For whatsoever fad obtain, I still will have my fee, sir. So it ends on this <laughs> kind of rousing, whatever happens, you're going to pay me. And it pursues this theme mm. that whatever's going on, I, the doctor, am just in it for the money. And I like that chorus because it really comes down on this sort of very it's almost like a sort of church it's almost mm. like a sort of hymnal thing the way the cadence finishes it's like it's the money for me that really matters effective you'd say Hi, i think highly effective i could see this one working it's interesting that it appears in uh, in a journal so it's not like people are having this necessarily sung to them straight away so they might have done that page might have been cut out and put on the streets but this is happening at a time when people singing songs in the streets is kind of going out a favor especially in london in the north it's still it's still more current but but singers on the street are kind of being um uh, they're they're declining um other forms of music are so taking how over. common was it to have songs printed in in journals in the cheaper journals i feel i feel it's taking off i feel these journals are trying to be all things to all people mm. in that way um certainly in in weekly publications before in something like cobbett's political register earlier in the century they'll always throw in a song or two and quite often what you get it's like with the letters pages, they have letters and then people send in a song to a tune and they like to print songs people have written or do their own and you come across them quite often. And the posher ones will even print the tune for you, but um, not on this level, which is the other good thing about knowing the tune already. You don't need to write it out because that's really expensive. Right. And also people can't read music. I mean, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, you obviously want to pick tunes that are familiar to people so that they don't have to learn something entirely new. Um, yeah, um, and the other song I think is, I wanted to mention the tune of the other song. They've chosen this very well, not only because it's a political, um, it's a political tune that has lots of connotations of of satire and sort of getting at the status quo and and um, being really sceptical about people, but I think it's a tune that's really good for conveying text. So you can fit quite a lot of words in it, and it works quite well. And it has a bit of a silly chorus, and I feel I need to to give you the start of that one as well. Um, I completely just... agree. What do you think? I think so, yeah. yes. <laughs> yeah, this one's just called Vaccination, but satirically it is dedicated to the professors of the destructive art of healing. A little snide paradox in its subtitle there. <laughs> um, and again, it sort of puts you in the false perspective of someone who's on the side of vaccination. It's like setting up the, the narrative voice that is clearly one to, to laugh at or be suspicious of, which I think is far more effective as a sort of comic tool mm. than just straight up saying this is our position this is wrong um i sing a great discovery the greatest air was known sir so far beyond old-fashioned ways of letting well alone sir all evils are now but a joke we smile at more taxation east winds dear coals so long as we can get our vaccination bow wow wow to putrefy the blood is all the go just now. And you mentioned that that was a particularly popular political tune, mm -hmm. and it makes a lot of sense because when you hear that chorus, you, you can hear sort of a, a crowd of people singing it in unison and the effect that that would have. Also a drinking song. Ah, of yeah. course. <laughs> yeah. In fact, yeah, I mean... There's a lot of crossover there, I think. <laughs> most definitely, yeah. yeah. I, think, I think that's very clear. Politics and drinking really go together at every social level in this century. Yeah. yeah. And it probably played off... Um, there was so much scepticism about doctors at this time and not you didn't have to be an anti-vaccinator to you know, to think that way. And, uh, you know, m plenty of people thought doctors were, were money grabbers and that they were ineffective in what they did. So this is probably, you know, um, you know, something that would chime with a lot of people and not just those who were um, uh, rooted in within the anti-vaccination movement. So Right. This was a period in which there was actually quite a lot of satire about the medical profession, mm -hmm. wasn't there? Yeah. Yeah, um, and you know, lots of concern. There was an increasing kind of scepticism about things like leeching, which had been the kind of mainstay of of, of, of medicine. You've got this, have a leech, let's do this, we'll, we'll bleed you, we'll be fine. And and people were becoming a bit more cynical about the effectiveness of, of those kinds of treatments. And I think yeah. perhaps they, they maybe even mentioned leeching in one of those songs. Yeah, but, um, yeah there's, there's a lot yeah. of confusion, I suppose, between what's actual orthodox medical practice, what's new, what people are used to. And especially if you imagine yourself like in an old country town or somewhere or or where you think things are going on. But they're not just people who are actual qualified doctors, but then proper quacks, as we, as we mentioned earlier, and the old sort of folk remedies or things you'll get at fairs and so on. So on the other side of this debate are obviously medical professionals, doctors. Um, was there a feeling that this needed to be directly addressed? How did the medical profession respond to that, or did it? I, th I think they were concerned, yeah. I mean, I that the main thing they did was was um, up the legislative regulations and to, and to increase uh, compulsion and to cre increase the laws around it, and that was their, their way of, of dealing with it. Um, I, th I mean, they're quite dismissive, I guess. You know, they just think this is, you know, uh, this is the philosophy of the uneducated, the people that, you know, the, these people don't understand medicine, they don't understand science. Obviously, as you, the century continues, you have a lot more scientific rhetoric around medicine um but you know they are patently concerned about it as as the medical profession continues to be so today it, it's sort of reason against instinct in a way isn't it mm. I, and they've got this impression of, of doctors not really wanting to stoop to a certain level yeah. and and 
that's kind of crippling to an extent. We don't have any pro-vaccination songs putting that message out there, and you can see why it doesn't seem it doesn't seem appropriate. But that means that the vocabulary that's just circling out there among the people and the views that are aren't necessarily being counted in the on the level on which the the other side is. I think so. I think there was a degree where they they didn't want to to countenance. So there's there's um you know there's discussions or reports of uh, doctors meeting and then anti-vaccinators turning up to try oh. and get involved in the meeting <laughs> and then being promptly booted out. Yeah, I think I it would be hard to think of a comparison to the to the the lengths we go today or the profession goes to today in terms of communicating their message. I mean there there were ways. I mean there was plenty of societies, public health societies which had doctors and uh, 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 other uh, people who wanted to help out from the middle classes trying to relay messages to the working to the working classes essentially it was a very there's a lot of class and gender elements going on in in this anyway um you know so there is a degree where people are trying to communicate that message but in terms of uh using the media using uh, literature and images and things like that I, I don't think there was anything comparable to what the other side were doing. And obviously we're seeing, I think, a bit of a resurgence of an anti-vaccination movement now in the 21st century. So are there any parallels that we can draw between the 19th century and the 21st century version that we see now? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it ever goes away completely. But yeah, I think uh, probably since uh, the MMR um, and Andrew Wakefield controversy, it's it's very much in our minds. And then in the last few years, we've seen uh, in America particularly, perhaps even more of a, of a recession and various issues uh, uh, coming up. Um, and we now have a, an anti-vaxxer in the White House as well, which is an interesting development. But no, I mean, it, it, I mean, for me, what some of the, the interesting stuff is, is around uh, media. And again, this comes back mm-hmm. to fake news and all these things as well, which right. are currently happening. Um, and uh, uh, the internet, I guess, is kind of an interesting parallel for, from the journals, um, uh, you know, and people creating their own kind of anti-vaccination uh, websites where they purport to have the real evidence about the damage that, that vaccine do and so forth. I'd say one thing that never seems to change is the impact of the the human interest side of things and the emotional and the way it only takes one accident and and one poor child to to really fly in the face of sort of any statistic you like to bring up like you can you can debate these things with with facts and reason all you like but what the the media from the 19th century shows is that actually it's um, very powerful to just raise raise people's emotions and put powerful images out there and even a joke or dredging up some some old history that is definitely fake news can um, be way more effective with a whole load of people than a careful rigorous demonstration of yeah I, I'm kind of wondering this topic of vaccinations and the anti-vax movement it's an interesting intersection of humanities science and medicine mm-hmm. what do you think we can learn from the humanities and looking at the history of science um well i mean i think i mean i hope what people have got from this podcast is you know the importance of having um a historical perspective, also a cultural historical yeah. perspective and seeing how something like vaccination, where we think back, we tend to think about people like Edward Jenner and that kind of, you know, history of medicine. That the actually sort of great man thing the coming great in. Man yeah. thing. Then I think what Oscar particularly shows with his research is how this is, you know, this is, this is, a, a, this is a, a cultural phenomenon and mm. it's playing out on the streets and in society in ways we might not necessarily remember that it did. Mm. And actually by seeing, by, by looking at that we can see parallels today with you know with what's going on with with vaccination 
I would I would add to the um, the point about the sort of great man theory and the thought of scientists and a lot of um, the idea maybe of a lot of male doctors having these views that um, so much of this propaganda or the arguments are put out there to women to children um, a lot of the a lot of the the arguments presented are are, are done to to all sorts of people and presented at families um, so it really is something that is not just the preserve of of an elite or of a, or of a male dominated setup this is something that concerns all people. And speaking purely as a historian, sort of, you get that claim that everything is history. Well, here it is, but um, any scientific debate has to take place in society between people. And attention to the forms of media that's done in the forms of culture is absolutely vital in thinking how to um, how this plays out, but also how ideas are conceived of in the first place. I think the the anti-vaccination movement in particular is is an interesting one. I mean, I'm, I'm on this project looking at citizen science. And obviously, when we think of citizen yeah. science, <laughs> we, we don't necessarily think about the anti-vaccination movement, which to, it seems in a way anti-science. But, but actually, this, you know, whether we like it or not, this was this was a major way in which many people were experiencing science and medicine. So, you know, we have to acknowledge that and we have to think about that when we're thinking about how mm -hmm. the public understood and, and experienced medicine in the 19th century. All that remains for me to do is to thank both of you for coming on the show and being part of this conversation. It was really interesting. Thanks I'll again. Drink to Cheers. That. Cheers. 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 Okay, you know what time it is now. Let's pop over to the bar to talk with our bartenders, Corey Mason and Tom Nicholson from the Oxford Artisan Distillery. Corey, I've got a big question for you today. What makes for a good cocktail every time? Are there any universal factors or ingredients that make for a good cocktail? What makes a good cocktail? A good cocktail has to have several things. It has to be balanced, for one. And this doesn't mean it has to be sweet and sour or whatever. It has to be a well-made drink. And that can be one that's all liqueurs or be one that's mostly straight, straight alcohol. But it's got to be balanced. And I think the other thing that's really important with any drink is it has to be... I don't know if appropriate's the best word, but it's more about the situation. You know, it's really where you're drinking it, who you're drinking it with. Um, in a large, you know, for a large part, that's where the bartender comes in. You know, you need to set a scene and create an environment to enjoy it. I get asked a lot uh, as a bartender and as a distiller, what's your favorite cocktail? You know, and I can say, I've got a couple. I've had a really amazing, you know, Manhattan before. It was just perfect and the bar was great and the lights were low and it's just this great experience. One of the best cocktails I've ever had also was a pina colada on the beach in Puerto Rico, which involved a bottle of rum and a can of Coca Loco. You know, and you punch a hole in the can. And it was just, it's, this is not an elevated cocktail. I don't even classify it as a cocktail. But, you know, it's 10 o'clock in the morning. We'd already gone diving and the sun is hot and you're drinking rum and sweet coconut. And it was a perfect cocktail for that time. So for me, that's really what makes an amazing drink. It's got to be in the right situation. Oh, that's so true. So if the situation really matters to a good cocktail, what do you think the environment of a 19th century conversazione might have been like? Can you imagine that kind of scientific and social setting, what that might have felt like at all? Oh, I think it'd be great for it. I think it would it would go really well. I mean, it's 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 this age of discovery. You're you're seeing new things, you're you're learning about new things and you're also seeing new cocktails you're having a new experience you know you're experiencing something you haven't done before so in this setting a cocktail would be perfect and the, the fancier the better you can have these cobblers with sugar and fruit and all these amazing things as someone's also 
blowing your mind with some new scientific, uh, you know, advancement or exploration. Any bar that's trying to open, that's really is what you're trying to create, this dynamic environment where people are sharing a great experience and learning about new things. And I mean, that's what cocktail bartenders do. If they're really good, they teach you something new and they elevate you to educate you in something you haven't, um, you know, experienced before. Awesome. Well, that brings us to the end of the episode. Thanks, Corey, for giving us some insights on what makes a great cocktail. If you'd like to learn more about vaccination and the anti-vax movement in the 19th century, we'll have full-length versions of the songs Oscar sang, as well as some images and cartoons from various 19th century publications available on our website. That's consicom.org. The Conversationalist is a podcast from the Constructing Scientific Communities Project, funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council. It is based at the Universities of Oxford and Leicester in partnership with the Natural History Museum, the Hunterian Museum at the Royal College of Surgeons, and the Royal Society. For our most recent podcasts, subscribe on iTunes or follow us on SoundCloud.